At any rate, it's wonderful to be back with you from Australia. We had a wonderful time over there with uh, kids and grandkids and uh, meeting with some of our old church members. And uh, it was a great time. It was hot, hot summertime. Uh, that's not my favorite time in Australia. Uh, Nan loved it because when we're with our daughter and her family, they go to the beach every single day. You know, I don't mind going to the beach once in a while, but every single day. And sometimes they would go in the morning and then again in the evening. Like, you know, they'd never been to the beach before. But uh, for me, that's just a little bit too much, but it was wonderful being with family and, and uh, catching up with old friends. And we appreciate your prayers. Um, you know, travel... I'm, I'm really of two minds right now about traveling. I don't know if you've been hearing a lot of the news about what's going on in our airline industries. Uh, they all seem to be uh, collapsing. Uh, it's, all, it's all going to cascade at some point. Uh, we are going to see hundreds of people lose their lives because uh, we no longer believe in professionalism. We no longer believe in promoting people who have the skills uh, the idea is that we promote anybody that'll show up, usually as long as they're not white. Um, and uh, it's, it's ultimately going to get some people killed. I read the other day of a pilot that's been flying for 15 or 20 years, coming into an airport that he's been to over and over and over. And the air traffic controller, which they now hire air traffic controllers that have psychological problems, mental disabilities, epilepsy and other things, you know, because they want to be diverse. And, and, and they don't even have to have a GED. They don't even have to have a high school. Some of them can't read and write. Well, this, this uh, lady was arguing with the pilot, telling him to land at a certain place, and he said, there's no runway there. And she said, I checked it on Google, and it said there is. <laughs> so uh, it's... Uh, Flying is, is something that ultimately is, we're going to see a lot of people hurt, unfortunately. But anyway, we made it back, so, so far so good. Uh, we're going to look tonight, <coughs> we're going to divert from just, we've started in chapter one, and, and I didn't want to pick up there, I want to, kind of wanted to get us back in the uh, flow of what First Corinthians is all about. So I thought a good place for us to start and this really goes along with something that I have been praying about for the last two months, uh, and that is that God would give me a message that His people need to hear this year. Uh, this is going to be a very unusual year. I think we're in for a very rough ride. Um, the wheels are coming off almost every industry on the planet. Um, there's going to come a point where there's going to be a cascading effect of all of these things, and we're going to uh, have to deal with it. So I started praying about two months ago and asking God, what would you have me to take as a general theme that I can use from many, many different passages that your people need to hear? And of course, we think about warning, we think about rebuke, we think about uh, you know, calling people to repent. I mean, we can think of a million things that in our mind would be the message that, that God would give. The thing that keeps coming back to me, and this could change, uh, you know, as I go forward and as I continue to pray, 
But the thing that's come back to me is we need to come back to an understanding of the love of God. Mm -hmm. I think we have a great deficiency in understanding the love of God. And when we, when we think about Scripture, you, you stop and think the most popular verse in the entire Bible is John 3.16. And it tells us that God so loved the world, and that little word so is very important because it's a qualitative word. It means God loved the world in this way, in that He sent His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And it's such a simple verse. And yet if you stop and think about it, Jesus Christ on the cross is the most graphic and the most blatant manifestation of the love of God for the human race. What he was willing to go through for each and every one of us and the motive behind his coming was the love of the Father for the human race, for every member of the human race the value that each and every human being has in the sight of God, and the fact that while we don't seek Him, He sent His Son to come seeking us. And as He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so I thought as I came back and I started getting back into 1 Corinthians, and I thought I'm just going to kind of run a, a check through 1 Corinthians and see what emphasis does Paul put on the love of God. And I thought a good place to start would be 1 Corinthians 13. So if you'd turn with me there, very, very well-known passage, of course. Uh, but as I thought about it, I thought this could actually be the theme verse for the entire book. Uh, just to give a little bit of review of some of the things that we've already covered, you'll remember, and by the way, you'll notice your pages are page 4 and 5, and that's because... I have one, two, and three ahead of them, and you'll, you'll be getting all that in time. Um, but we talked about how the Corinthian church in the first nine verses of chapter one, Paul talks about them as a very gifted and a very blessed church. He says that they had all of the spiritual provisions and blessings that God could give to a local church. And then we went through a list, which I've expanded even since we went through it, of the sins that are mentioned in the church in Corinth. We're up to, I think, 13 now. Of sins that were actively going on in the church, which, by the way, shoots down a couple of things that are often taught. Number one, if you're truly saved, you'll never do these things again. Well, Paul speaks to them as brethren, as beloved, as saints, as those who are God's children, and then rebukes them for all of the sins that are going on. And some of them were pretty gross sins. So the idea that if you're truly saved, you're never going to do anything like that again goes out the window. And then the other fallacy is if you have actually made Jesus your Lord, uh, you are going to overcome all of these things. Well, kind of the same fallacy. Um, I would suggest this. I would suggest if we truly understood the love of God, we would overcome those things in our lives. It doesn't mean that we're ever going to become perfect. Uh, we are going to struggle with our own sinfulness. Each of us uh, has a sin nature. You have a sin nature personality. The personality of your sin nature is different than mine. What may tempt me would not tempt you. Where you may be strong, I would be weak. Uh, we have to deal with one another as broken and flawed people. And that's a part of our heritage 
coming down from Adam. And we have to uh, be gracious to one another and accept one another in all of our faults and flaws and failure because we realize that we're the same way. However, when we lay hold of the love of God in the person of Christ and what he did for us at the cross, if we continue to grow in our understanding and comprehension of that love, I believe it to be the most powerfully transforming power and effect that could possibly impact our life. So again, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Paul says, now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I could give you a list of, and I don't remember how many different passages these three show up in, but it's really all the way through the New Testament. You'll find faith, hope, and love in close proximity to one another. Not, o- not always in that order. Sometimes it's uh, faith, hope, and love. Sometimes it's faith, love, and hope. But what Paul is telling us here is something very important, and it was something very important for the Corinthians because it hit at the root of all of their problems. All of the errors that they had fallen into, all of the false things that they had believed, uh, all of the philosophical stuff that they had gotten into, they would not have gotten into if they really understood and were experiencing. And I put a lot of emphasis on the fact that it's not just understanding the love of God, it's actually living in the experience of it. So Paul says, faith, hope, and love, these three virtues, the greatest of which is love. And you have all this in your notes, but I'm just going to kind of go over it because, you know, we would ask the question, why would love be the most important? Uh, We talk about the fact that we're saved by faith alone, and therefore, uh, wouldn't faith be the greatest of those three? And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11.1 that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So there we have faith basically giving birth or giving rise to hope. We have the hope of God's grace to us in time. We have the hope of eternal life uh, without hope. The hope of Christ's uh, return and eternal life. Paul says we would be of all men most to be pitied in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19. So... Obviously, faith and hope are extremely important. So why would we, or I should say, why would Paul put love above the other two? Why would he say it's the greatest? And I think as we go through some scriptures, you'll begin to see that everything in the plan of God is based on this. This is the foundation of the entire plan of God for the human race. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at two or three different passages this evening. And Ephesians chapter 2. We look at verse 8, which once again I'm picking some very popular and and well-known passages. Paul says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And by the way, don't let people deceive you on this verse. There are those who will tell you that faith is the gift. That cannot be sustained. The text will not sustain it. The grammar of the text 
uh, will not uphold that position. The gift is salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that salvation is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. So once again, we see salvation by grace through faith, and it would be a logical thing to say, wouldn't that make faith the most important thing? It's the basis of our salvation. But I think it's important for us to back up and read what he says earlier in the text, because it's only when you read what he says earlier in the text that you understand what the that is. That is not of yourselves. So back up with me, if you will, to verse 4. He says, and he's talking all the way from verse 1. He talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we also all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So he's gone through this whole thing that speaks of the condition of the natural man. And then we have that marvelous and beautiful contrast, but God. Had God not entered into the world, had Christ not taken on human flesh, had He not stepped down into our world and lived like life among us and then gone to the cross in our place, we would have no hope. So the but God here is the great intervention of God in human history. But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. In other words, He loved us at our very worst. At the very worst we've ever been, God loved us enough to send Christ into the world for our salvation. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. Here's the parenthesis. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. You ever look at that parenthesis and wonder why he puts the parenthesis here when he's going to state it later? Well, there's a reason. And the reason is because he's given us three indications of what it means to be saved. Notice, what is it? When we were dead in trespasses and sins, God did three things for us in Christ. Number one, He made us alive together with Christ. In other words, at the moment that we place our trust in Him because of the sacrifice He made for us on the cross, we are made spiritually alive. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. We are born again, born of God. When we're born into this world, born the first time, we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. When we're born the second time, we are born spiritually alive, though we were spiritually dead. We enter into the life of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's one reason why once you possess eternal life, you can never lose it. Because eternal life is eternal. You might have guessed that. So what's the first thing he did? He made us alive together with Christ. Secondly, he raised us up together. You say, well, in what sense has he raised us up? We haven't experienced the resurrection yet. How are we raised up with Christ? 
Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, Since then you have been raised up with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How sure can we be that once we pass from this earth, we will be in His presence? Absolutely sure, and why? Because we're already there. In the mind of God, we are seated with Christ at His right hand in the place of ultimate privilege and absolute power. That's amazing. So He made us alive. He raised us up together. And then did what? He made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And that is the position that every single child of God holds. God has no favorites. There are not special people in His plan. He doesn't give more grace to some. He doesn't diminish His grace to others because they don't deserve it as much because the issue is never whether we deserve it because no one does. To be given life in Jesus Christ, to be raised up in resurrection life, and then to be seated at His right hand is to be placed in a position of the greatest possible favor with a heavenly Father. Probably the closest thing that illustrates it in human terms is the most popular parable in the Bible, and that is the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son deserves nothing. He left by his own free will. He went away from the father. He took all of the father's gifts, all the privileges, all the possessions. He took them and he squandered them in what it calls riotous living or prodigal living, which really just has the idea of a completely debauched lifestyle. You can let your mind expand on the kind of lifestyle he might have been living, but then he ends up where? He ends up finally running out of money. When you run out of money, what else do you lose? You lose all the phony friends that were hanging around you because you had money. He has nothing. Scripture makes it clear no one gave him anything. You're not going to find grace in this natural world. And so what does he do? He goes and hires himself out. There's a little spark that shows something of character in the young man because he was at least willing to work. And he went out and he hired himself out to feed the hogs. And he was so hungry, no one is, is providing him anything. He has a very meager income. And he would have fought the hogs for the husks that they were eating. And how beautiful in that passage when it says, and he came to himself. He was out of his right mind, wasn't he? He came to himself and a little light went on in that dark soul of his that said, even the lowest servant in my father's house has plenty to eat, plenty to uh, wear, totally cared for, a place to sleep. I'll go get up and go back to my father. When he comes back to the father, he has a speech rehearsed. He's all planning to tell his father how he's no longer worthy. He's willing to be a slave. How many times have you come to God with that mentality? And that mentality is not honoring to him. You know, the story of the prodigal son is really not a story of the prodigal son as much as it's a story of the love of the father. That's the real lesson that Jesus was trying to teach because it's in a string of three parables that show that there's more rejoicing in heaven over the sinner who repents than the 99 who are already safely in the fold. So when the young man comes back, 
The Father is looking far off, watching for Him every day, sees Him stumbling over the hill, sees Him dressed in rags, sees Him barefooted, probably with bleeding feet. What a long, long journey it was coming back when it was such an easy trip going away. And the young man expecting to be made the least is received by the Father as an honored son. And a lot of people use the story of the prodigal son as a salvation message, but I really don't believe it is. The son was always a son. It's more a story of the wandering believer who strays from God's plan and God's purpose, wanders far away from him, and then finally comes back. And how does the father receive the son? He puts his ring on his finger, which is basically his bank account, He brings out the finest robe. He puts sandals of service on his feet. He kills the fatted calf. They're going to make merry. They're going to have a party. If you and I could understand that every time we fall, every time we fail, every time we've wandered away, when we come back, that's God's mentality. Would that change your experience as a Christian? I believe it would. Because, you know, the devil loves to remind us of all of our failures. He loves to remind us of what we have done. And I often tell people, the next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Don't believe the lie. There will never come a time, no matter how far you or I have fallen, that the father will not receive us as that father received the prodigal son. And it's on the basis of that that we're told in Hebrews that we should come boldly to the throne of grace. And you notice that it doesn't say let us come boldly to the throne of grace when we're spick and span and neat and clean and we've done everything right. No, the author is talking to people who are in disobedience and rebellion. And he's saying let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help us when in our time of need in the time when we're struggling, in the time when we're hurting, in the time when our surroundings all seem against us, when the sky seems dark, when there are storms all around us, that's the time the Father most loves to see us come to Him. So looking at this passage here in Ephesians, I just want to point out a couple of things to you. I want you to notice it's a wonderful thing to be saved by grace. By grace you have been saved. Again, what is saved? It's being made alive. It's being given resurrection life. It's being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But notice verse 4. It tells us God is rich in mercy. Now mercy in particular has to do with God dealing with our failures. Mercy is the subtraction side of the love of God. Mercy is what provides us forgiveness. Mercy is what provides us cleansing. Grace, on the other hand, supplies the things that we lack. It provides for us all of those spiritual riches and spiritual blessings that are ours because of Christ. But do you notice something? God is rich in mercy. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. So I think what we see here is everything that comes to us of benefit, of blessing, of provision is ultimately ours because of the love of the Father. We only have access to His mercy. We only have access to His grace because He loves us with such a great love. And so then you come down to verse 8. 
By grace you have been saved. What does that mean? Once again, we have been given new life. We have been raised up and we have been seated with Christ through faith. Faith lays hold of that gift of the love of God. Not of yourselves. It, that salvation, is a free gift of God. If we were to go to Romans chapter 5, and I'm not going to turn there, but in Romans 5, Paul talks about the fact that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward to that day that Christ returns. We look forward to that day when we enter into His presence. And as we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, why do we have this? Because He tells us later, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God produces the love of God both to us and through us. The goal of the Spirit of God is, number one, to convince us of the love of the Father and to pour out as an overflowing supply that love of God to us. As John tells us in 1 John, we love Him. Why? Not because of anything in us. We love Him because He first loved us. And I would suggest the more I understand His love for me, the more I'm going to love Him. Therefore, we come to the topic that I'm aiming at, as I said, at least at the present, until I get turned in a different direction. I would like to know more of the love of God because I would like to love Him more. You know, Billy Graham was asked at the end of his life, and he had a phenomenal life, tremendous ministry. And you would think if you were asked and you were in His place, what do you regret in your life? What, what, do you, what, what troubles you maybe as you look back over your life? You know what he said? He said, I wish I had prayed more. I wish I had prayed more. And I thought about that a while back, and I thought, what would I say if someone asked me, what do you most regret in your life? I could think of a whole lot of things that I've said, things I've done, things I've thought, but you know what? They wouldn't even come close. The thing that I would regret the most is that I have loved God so little. And whatever time remains, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we committed ourselves to actually learning more about His love because we can't increase our love for Him until we increase our understanding of how much He loves us. And by the way, not only us, the next time you see a person that you're naturally repulsed by, you know, that street person, that scroungy person, that uh, person in dirty clothes, uh, that person with tattoos from head to foot, whatever it may be. The next time you see somebody like that, remind yourself, God loves that person enough that He sent His Son into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. And it may not only change our attitude concerning the love of God, but I think it'll change our attitude to a lot of people. All right, let's move on. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. I mentioned in your notes, and I think all of us sense this. I think, I think some of us feel uh, almost a sense of foreboding as we enter into 2024. We have to ask ourselves a question. What was the power 
that gave the early church the victory over the hate and the persecution of the ancient world. You know, in the early church, when the various Roman persecutions began, Roman soldiers would break into a gathering like this. They met in homes. That's how the church started. And they would break into a place like this and they would arrest everyone and they would take us to prison and they would go through the uh, facade of a court case and we would be adjudged worthy of execution and their methods of execution were quite interesting. Nero, for example, who was the emperor during the time of the Apostle Paul, used to throw garden parties. And in his garden parties, he used to love to impale Christians on stakes, cover them with oil, and light them on fire. They became the lamps of his garden party. If they didn't end up dying that way, they would be thrown to the beasts or thrown to the gladiators in the arena for the amusement of the Roman people. Men, women, even little children. And this is how they found their entertainment. Well, you and I are living in an increasingly hostile environment. You would never read this, but it's a fact that last year over 5,000 Christians worldwide were executed for their faith. Over 5,000. More Christians die in persecution now than ever died in the Roman persecutions. Nigeria is probably one of the most dangerous countries for Christians, which uh, is heavy on my heart because that was the first country that I had the opportunity to go in and teach God's word and meet with the people there. But it's becoming very, very dangerous. Think about living in that world and ask yourself, or if, you know, sitting here in America today and we say, what if the world was going to get like that in our future? What would sustain me? Well, I'd want to have a cabin in the mountains. I'd want to have stockpiles of food and whatever other necessities that I think I might need. I might want about five AR rifles or AK rifles with about, you know, five or 10,000 rounds of ammunition and so on and so forth, right? I mean, that's common thinking today, isn't it? Have you ever thought like that? Hey, I think like that all the time. I am not anti-prepper. As a matter of fact, I think prepping is biblical. When we study about Joseph in Genesis 41, what does he tell the Pharaoh? You've got seven good years coming of good harvest and great uh, produce among your flocks, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. So what do we do? Let's stockpile. It's a biblical concept. Mm -hmm. What are we told in the book of Proverbs? Go to the ant, you sluggard. Study her ways and be wise. She lays up her food in the summer so that she can be sustained through the winter. That's just good common sense. So I say that so that you understand you're talking to someone who fully believes in trying to look ahead and trying to take whatever steps you can take. If I know that something bad is about to happen, I'm going to at least do what I can to try to minimize how bad it's going to be. But you know what? You can lose all that. Mm -hmm. You can lose all that in a second. 
We have political prisoners that have been in a gulag in Washington, D.C. for three years who broke no laws, committed no violence, did nothing wrong, and in fact were invited in by the D.C. police. The whole thing was a setup. And they've never had a trial. And they're still in jail. And they're still there. And I hope that you'll pray for them. And what, what did they do? They walked in the Capitol. They called it an insurrection. Oh, okay. Right, okay. yeah. Now they're going after people that didn't even go in just for being there. So we live in a corrupt system and an evil world. But here's my question. If I were one of them, and I could have been because I almost went, and I guarantee you I would have gone in, and I could be in that cell right now. By the way, they recently, with the temperatures dropping into the teens and 20s, they recently cut off the heat to those prisoners. They're in cells with no heat. The guards, you can see pictures of guards wearing hoodies and big heavy jackets, and the prisoners have nothing. Yet they let the uh, illegals into our public schools. Right, to get out of right. Well, we could go on and on. We realize we're living in an evil time. However, the point's this. What if I were there? What good would all that stuff that I stocked up do if I was in that cell? It wouldn't help me at all. Man would be safe. But you know what? <laughs> if... I had a deeply experiential understanding of the love of God, it would sustain me. Mm -hmm. And it would sustain me just as it did those multitudes of Christians in the early Roman world as they were persecuted and hounded and driven from home and business and many times sacrificed, knowing the love of God, the greatest most victorious power that the world has ever known. The power, by the way, that sustained Jesus Christ on the cross. So Romans chapter 8. As we look here, you notice in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. Well, let's back up to verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Super conquerors is what the Greek actually says. How? Through him who loved us. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I could get that principle and promise fixed in my mind, where I was absolutely certain of it, I don't believe I'd have anything to fear. As a matter of fact, just off the top of my head, as I was thinking on uh, themes of the love of God, I sat down with a little notebook and I just started off the top of my head, just remembering verses, passages. I started writing them down. I'm now up to 30. These are just ones I remember. I'm not looking anything up. I'm just letting them come into my mind. You know one of the things that I've found? The fear of, of or the love of God banishes the fear of anything that can happen in this world. John tells us in 1 John, there is no fear in love. Listen closely. He who fears, what comes next, has not been made perfect in love. The word perfect doesn't mean as we take it to be sinless, uh, perfect without fault. 
the word actually refers to a maturity, having reached a level of completeness and fulfillment. And therefore what he's saying is, suppose you were with those early Christians, suppose the Roman soldiers were breaking in, suppose that you were being dragged into the arena, would you be able to conquer fear? Christ did it at the cross. There was no fear for him as he went to the cross, but he overcame it through the very thing available to you and I, and that is the love of God. And you know what? He had to battle to lay hold of that love in the Garden of Gethsemane. That shows how much he partook of your likeness and my likeness. So, as we look at Romans chapter 8, we're reminded in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good. And most people want to put a period there. We need to be very attentive to the way that the scriptures are written. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why does he add that little phrase, called according to his purpose? All of us have a purpose in the plan of God, but not all of us have been called. What do I mean by that? Called, the way Paul's using it here, means that you heard and answered the call. God calls us all. He calls us all to a purpose, to a plan, to a service that he intends for us to fulfill. But if we plug our ears, we're never going to know what that is. And therefore, we are not among those who answered and responded to that call. And then, of course, as you read on through uh, coming down to verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then he goes into uh, this tremendous, it's almost like a hymn of praise of how victorious we can be if we really understand the love of God. I think that's a pretty powerful argument. You all remember the song? We've probably sung it here. Faith is the victory. Great old song. It's a good song. We know it's true because John tells us in 1 John 5, 4 and 5 that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? But it's actually worth pointing something out in that text. If you want, you can just turn over to 1 John chapter 5. You can see it on the page in front of you. 1 John 5 and verse 4. Why does it say whatever is born of God and not whoever? You know, when we see things like this in Scripture, they're not there by accident. It wasn't a lapse of his writing skill that he wrote whatever in the neuter instead of whoever. Some suggest it's because in Greek, your nouns are masculine, feminine, or neuter, and he didn't want to use either masculine or feminine because he wanted to include everybody, and therefore he used the neuter. Well, that's a possible argument or explanation. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think he's talking about what Paul calls the new man. 
He's talking about that new creation. He's talking about the you that wasn't there the day before you trusted Christ as your Savior. Because when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is created in us an absolutely new creation. A new man, a new person. A person that is spiritually an infant, a person that needs to grow in grace and truth, a person who is not yet what they will one day become, and we don't see it, but if we could look at each other tonight and just imagine what we would be looking at if we saw those people once they're in the presence of God, you would be looking on a glorious creation, a glorious person. It's good to think about that when Christians get under our skin. So whatever I think is speaking of that new person born of God, that new creation, and as we think about whatever is born overcomes the world, why is it? Well, if you back up to verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot, that is love for God, also loves him who is begotten of God. In other words, we learn to love one another because we love the Father. Our love of the Father as it grows increases our appreciation and our affection for fellow members of the body of Christ. Verse 2 says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. In other words, the way for me to increase my appreciation for you and my love for you is to increase my appreciation and understanding of the love of God. I need to receive it before I can give it. I love him because he first loved me, but I can also only love you as I receive his love in a greater degree and to a greater abundance. Verse 3 says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, the Christian life is not that tough. It really isn't. And why is that? Well, we wrestle. There's no doubt that there is a struggle between the word of God and his purpose and the sin nature that we have. But the interesting thing is, when Jesus called us to him, what did he say? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll make life tough on you. <laughs> no, that's not what he said. I will give you rest. It's out there in the world where there's no rest. Scripture says there's no rest for the wicked. My dad always used to quote that when it was time to go out and do the chores. You know, the wind's howling, the snow's blowing, it's freezing cold. We're in there by the nice warm stove if we even have the chance to get into the stove because sometimes he'd believe in keeping us out all day long. He'd say, boys, time to go do the chores. There's no rest for the wicked. I grew up hearing that almost every day of my life. But what did Jesus go on to say? Take my yoke on you and learn from me. That's, that's what we're doing right here. I hope that you're not just here hearing me. I hope you're hearing another voice. I hope that in every class, as you go away from that class, you'll think there was one particular part of that class that really spoke to me. If you walk away with that one thing, because everything I say may not apply to you, 
that one thing that God, the Holy Spirit, who knows your heart, knows your life, knows your needs, puts his finger on your soul, on that sensitive area, and says, this is for you. That's the one thing you don't want to reject because he's speaking to you. This is the love of God when we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. We could go into John chapter 14. I'm sure you remember in John 14, Jesus made what I believe to be the greatest. Well, as a matter of fact, let's do it. We've got a few minutes. I think it's worth wrapping up with this. I believe this to be the greatest promise in the Bible. John 14. You remember that the setting here is in the upper room from John 13 to John 17. Jesus is in the upper room. He's already washed the disciples' feet. Judas has already left. He's already been ejected from the wedding feast. Remember when Jesus told the parable in Matthew 22 about the guy that showed up in the wedding feast without a wedding garment? It was a prophecy. It happened right here. Judas came in with no wedding garment and he was ejected. And it was after he was ejected that Jesus began to speak some of the most phenomenal truths that were ever spoken to any member of the human race. But in John 14, we find the promise that I believe in. You know, we all believe in claiming the promises of God. It's been said that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. How many of those promises have we ever claimed? How much difference could it make if we just began to claim those promises? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ. All things work together for good. And by the way, we should never forget, a lot of these promises come with conditions. Mm -hmm. All things work together for good to those that love God. If I'm in a condition where I'm not loving God at this moment, things are not going to be working out for me. Everything's going to be turning against me. 7,000 promises. This promise, I believe, is at the top of the list. Here it is. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments, you have them because you have a Bible, right? And keeps them. The word here is very interesting. It's a word that means to guard as something precious. To guard as something precious. It obviously implies obedience to the command, but it's more than just obedience. You know, sometimes you can obey with a bad attitude. Sometimes you can say, well, I know I have to do this, but I really don't want to do it. This is the idea that this is something of value, something precious that God has given for my benefit and for my blessing. It's the same word that Jesus uses later in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 when he says, because you have kept the word of my endurance, remember to the Philadelphian church, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world. Does that mean that he was going to pick them up and, and carry them away from all the trials and, and difficulties? Not at all. It means that he was going to sustain them through it. Just as Paul said, he had gone through many persecutions in Lystra and Iconium, and he had been beaten, he had been stoned. And remember what he says to Timothy, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Did God just take him away and, 
and not let anything bad happen? No, he went through a lot of suffering. But the Lord delivered him out of him. Why? Because he claimed this promise. Here it is. He who has my commandments and keeps him, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Quick question. Doesn't God love us all? Doesn't God love every member of the human race? Scripture says that he does. So what's the difference? There are different levels of love. There is such a thing as impersonal love. And by impersonal love, what I mean is if I see a guy, as we often do in India and Africa and Asia and South America and many places we've been, and you see people who are destitute and literally starving, and you look at them and you see their suffering and you identify with their need, you love that person, but it's really impersonal. You don't know them. You're not connected to them. You're not, they're not related to you. You just see their suffering and your heart goes out to them. That's the love that I would say God has for every member of the human race. But take that to a different setting and have it be your husband, your wife, your grandchild is sitting on the side of that road and is shivering and freezing. Wouldn't you have a little bit different feeling for that person? It's still love, but it's love on a different level. And this is what he's talking about here. There's a different level that you and I can enter into in our experience with the love of God. And he says, if we have his commandments and we guard them, we treasure them, we obey them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Have you ever had a manifestation of Christ? I don't mean waking up in the night and seeing him standing there or coming out of your closet. You know, we'd all love to have an experience like that. I don't think it's likely to happen. What does it mean that he'll manifest himself? If I could only tell you how many times, and I'm sure possibly uh, BJ saw some of this in her recent trip when you're maybe on a foreign field or maybe you're in uh, just everyday activity and things are going wrong and you have uh, a heartache, you have a, a tragedy, a disaster, whatever, you have a bad phone call and there you are and you just get down and you start praying and somehow God enters into the equation and you see him just work everything out and you go, wow, that was, that was a manifestation of God. He showed me that he's here. He showed me that he cares. He showed me that, that my life matters to him. So it's not enough for him to say it once. He repeats it up here in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to them, or to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And get this, we will come to him and make our home with him. Why do you think in the next chapter, he says, abide in me and I in you. He puts a condition on his abiding in me. And what is that condition? I have to abide in him. How do I abide in him? He tells us, read through John 15. He who loves me will keep my commandments and he will abide in me and I will abide in him. 
Not only that, not only is there that close fellowship, not only is there that sense that He is present with us, not only do we have the assurance that we're not going to face anything that we are not capable of enduring and overcoming, but it even goes above and beyond that because He says they will bear fruit. They'll bear more fruit. They'll bear much fruit. How does all of this magnificent plan work out? It all begins and ends with the love of God. And so I thought it would be worthwhile as we look at this church that had so many problems, so many things going wrong, so many evil activities in the church. I mean, for crying out loud, they were having the communion supper and people were getting drunk. They had incest going on in the church and they were raving about it like this was a great thing. This shows how much, how gracious we are. And yet Paul, being honest and dealing faithfully with the problems, never lets them forget that God loves them and God has a better plan for them. So I hope that'll be a challenge for us going into 2024. Above all other preparations, make this preparation. Pursue the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the love that you've given to us and we sing about it and we talk about it and we read about it. But Father, we are oftentimes paupers when it comes to really understanding and experiencing it and realizing what a close and what a powerful relationship and fellowship that we can have with you if only we will daily draw near, humble ourselves, enter into your presence in prayer, let your word fill our soul, and then live your word out in our life. So I pray, Father, that we would all be challenged to make that the preparation we want to make for 2024, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.